Do gender stereotypes go too far? Are they really useful when we're talking about marriage? That's what we're going to be talking about today on the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, the place where we try to stop marriage from feeling like a big to-do list and make it feel like a passionate adventure. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire, the blogger from To Love, Honor, and Vacuum, and I'm so glad that you are joining me today. I follow a guy named Tim Fall on Twitter, and he said recently, God created the male and female, not masculine and feminine. And I thought that was really insightful because, you know, masculine and feminine are cultural constructs. And what I mean by that is that they can change over time. They're very varied. What we understand to be masculine or feminine isn't universal for all times and all places. And that's why I really worry that we've gone off base with the way that we talk about gender stereotypes, especially in church and especially in marriage. And we've all heard those stereotypes, right? You know, the whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing, or whenever people talk about how men are like this and women are like this. I find this a problem because even blogging, I do tend to make generalities and I try to always say, but we know that not all men are like this or not all women are like this because we very rarely do fall into a category where 100% of men are one way or 100% of women are another way. We actually are quite different. And that's hardly surprising. I mean, look at nature. (laughs) We live in a world which has so much diversity. My husband is a big bird watcher. And when we started a bird watching, we thought duck meant mallard. Like, do you know what a mallard duck is? They're the most common form of duck. And we never knew there were any other kinds of ducks until we started bird watching. And then we learned about wood ducks and harlequin ducks and king eiders and all of these different kinds of ducks. But I never knew they existed because we just thought duck equals mallard. And, and I think that's where we're at often when it comes to men and women. We don't realize that actually there's all kinds of different ways to be a man and there's all kinds of different ways to be a woman. And quite often when those two people get together, it's not always going to look the same as anyone else's marriage. And that's totally okay. So let's take a step back here for a minute and see what the differences honestly are between men and women, because there are some differences, but I don't think those differences are as widespread as we necessarily say. So first of all, there are definitely some biological differences. For instance, We can say that men are taller than women. That doesn't mean that all men are taller than all women, but that doesn't mean that there aren't situations where the wife is the taller one. (laughs) Um, I read a really interesting book uh, by Leonard Sachs about gender in school um, a while ago, and he was talking about the different ways that boys and girls are quite different. And some of the things that he's found or, or that scientists have definitely found is that teenage boys are far higher risk takers than teenage girls. Uh, that's why boys tend to get in more car accidents. Boys will often drink and drive more. Boys' car premiums are much higher. Teenage boys and younger boys tend to be far more motivated by competition than girls are. And so in all boys schools, you'll find that competition is often a great uh, motivator. Whereas when you do that for girls, they tend to like teamwork a little bit more. But that doesn't mean that all boys like competition. I don't know how many of you are big watchers of The Crown. I love that show. And the episode, I think it's in season two, where Prince Charles is away at school at this hyper masculine school, the way that we would traditionally define masculinity 
and he just did not fit in because he was not as motivated by these hyper-masculine competitive things as um, we may think. So while many boys are more motivated by competition than girls, it doesn't mean that all boys respond to that, okay? We can also say that women in general have better hearing and more acute hearing than guys do. And people have posited that it's because, you know, when women are in a group, you need to be able to identify that it's your baby that's crying. You know, so when there's a lot of toddlers and babies around, women are often able to distinguish their own baby's cry much better than a man can distinguish it. Women tend to be better at language, while men tend to be better at math. Again, it doesn't mean that all men are better at math than all women, but you're going to find more men in the upper, upper, upper echelons, like, you know, in the standard deviations, the very, very, very top. What's interesting about men too, uh, in terms of intelligence, is that you also find more men at the bottom. Men's bell curve is is more spread out than women's. So you'll get more men that are, are really, really highly gifted at math, but you'll also get more men that aren't as gifted at all. But we know there's some women who are too. If you haven't seen the movie Hidden Figures, you totally have to see that. Uh, it's about the African-American women who worked for NASA in the 1960s and 70s. And it, just an incredible movie, an incredible story. So it's not like women cannot be good at math, okay? That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Men tend to have better spatial ability. Women tend to be better at multitasking. Men tend to compartmentalize better. And people have posited that it's because in hunter-gatherer societies, women needed to have an awareness of where the children were and what the kids were doing at the same time as they were gathering food, whereas men were hunting and so they were hyper-focused on their goal. And and so it worked in those days and our brains still work that way a little bit. Again, it doesn't mean that all women can multitask, but these are just basic biological differences that do affect us. And when it comes to sex, the thing that I talk about the most, (laughs) there's also some biological differences. If you put the two bell curves about libido up, for instance, you will find that men's bell curve is further to one side than women's, which means that men on the whole have higher libidos. But again, it does not mean that all men have higher libidos. The problem comes, I think, when we start to spread these biological differences to character and personality traits. And let me give you an example. We often hear that gentleness is a feminine trait. You know, women are called to be gentle. But actually, in the Bible, men are called to be gentle too. Jesus is called gentle. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It is not like gentleness is feminine, and yet we often make it into something which is feminine. Or how about this? You know, we think of men as having these big leadership qualities, and they're supposed to be confident go-getters. But if you look at the word "ezer," which is the Hebrew word for helper, you know how God made Eve as an ezer for Adam. That word actually has a military connotation. It's the same word that God uses of Himself in the Psalms, where it says that you know the Lord is my strength and my shield, a very present help in trouble. Like it, the ezer word is there. So if God himself acts as a shield for us, acts as a helper for us, then that word shouldn't be seen as like a subordinate word. It actually is a word connotating great strength. I find it so funny that we talk about biblical womanhood so much, but we very, very rarely talk about biblical women. 
Ever notice that? You'll hear this big sermon on what biblical womanhood is and how she's supposed to be caring for the house and she's supposed to be gentle and she's supposed to take joy in um, following her husband's lead and never making decisions or never bringing anything up or never teaching or speaking or doing any of these things because she's just busy caring for the home. And yet when you look at the women in the Bible, they weren't really like that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being like that, by the way. Absolutely not. Um, And that's a point I'm going to be making in a minute. (laughs) But to say that all women are like that, or that that is the only manifestation of biblical womanhood, is very difficult to argue when you look at the women in the Bible. I mean, here's some examples of biblical womanhood. There's the woman who, when her enemy um, ran for protection into her tent, she lulled him to sleep and then took a tent peg and shoved it through his head, nailed it through his head. You know, jail is an example of a biblical woman and she defeated Sisera. (laughs) Um, Mary learned at Jesus' feet, Mary, the sister of Martha. That means that she took on the role of a rabbinical student because that was the first century way, first century Jewish way of identifying somebody who was studying under a rabbi. They sat at his feet. So when she sits at Jesus's feet, when Martha is busy making dinner, was she not a biblical woman while Martha was a biblical woman? Because Jesus actually praised Mary, not Martha. Deborah led Israel, the Proverbs 31 woman. She had a, she had a flourishing business. Uh, Priscilla taught Apollos. Lydia was a dye merchant and she had the first church in Europe in her house. Those are all examples of biblical women, and yet you would be hard-pressed to find these descriptors that we normally use of biblical womanhood applied to a lot of these people. But let's ask about biblical manhood. What is biblical manhood supposed to be? And we normally think of it as this assertive leader who is going to act like a man. And um, and when we say act like a man, we all have this idea of what we mean, right? That he's going to go take charge. He's going to tell people what to do. He's going to run out and protect everyone. Well, David wrote poetry. Jeremiah often had dark spells and he, you know, he wasn't out there necessarily leading. He, you know, he was very introspective and a lot of lamentations and a lot of the prophet Jeremiah, if you read the book, is really him being very introspective. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we hear that at the Last Supper, he actually reclined onto Jesus's chest. These are not things that we would normally associate with biblical manhood either. And yet they are biblical men. It is not black and white, this idea of biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. It doesn't work that way. And what happens when we assign these things to personality traits? Because we do that too, don't we? Like we say that certain personality traits are masculine and certain personality traits are feminine, even outside of the Bible. Well, I wrote a series um, back in August on the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, which is a great personality tool. There's 16 different personality types. We often portray thinkers and feelers as being male and female. And by thinker and feeler, what I mean is some people tend to make decisions based on logic and some people tend to make decisions based on what effect is this going to have on the people around me. They think about relationships first. So it's like logic versus relationships. Both are very important. And if we're totally on logic, we'll end up bowling people over. If we're totally on feelings and relationships, then we could end up doing things that are counterproductive in the long run. So, you know, you need both elements if we're going to function well. 
but we tend to name thinkers as men and feelers as women. But if you look at the population, yes, 75% of women are feelers, but that means that 25% are not. Okay, 25% of women actually are more logical. I fall into that category. <laughs> but even among men, here's what's interesting. 43% of men are feelers, which means that only 57% of men are thinkers. So that's barely over half of men are thinkers, are logical. The rest of them actually are quite concerned about relationship. So we assume these things are male and female when they're not. Or how about the one about introvert, extrovert? We assume that it's women who want to talk all the time and it's men who don't. But actually the introvert and extrovert, it doesn't work that way with gender either. Among men, 54% are introverts. But that means that 46% are extroverts. 46% of men actually get their energy from being with other people rather than from being alone. So this idea that all men need a man cave and need time to themselves is not true. 54% probably do, but 46% do not. Another big characteristic of extroverts is that we need to talk about things before we know what we think. So we tend to process things by speaking about them. Introverts tend to need to go alone and think about things before they can speak them out loud. That's often why resolving conflict can be difficult if you're an introvert and an extrovert, because an extrovert wants to talk about it immediately. An introvert needs to think first. It's good to know if you're different on those scales. Luckily, my husband and I are not. We're both talkers. We, we probably actually talk too fast about a lot of these things when we would benefit by taking a step back. But regardless... We often picture that women are always the extrovert, so women need to talk to process, but actually 47% of women are introverts. So almost half of women process by themselves too. And like I said, libido is another big one that I see all the time. We talk about it as if men are always the ones with the higher libidos, whereas really in about 25 to 30% of marriages, it's actually the woman with the higher libido. So what happens if we start talking about characteristics like they are absolutely always female or always male, like men are always like this and women are always like this? What happens when you think there's only one model of the Proverbs 31 woman? Or if you think that all men have to be a certain way? I've been watching some of the... Uh, YouTube videos and trailers for some men's conferences that are coming up. And, you know, you've got the ATVs, you've got the fireworks, you've got guns, you've got all of this stuff. And they're all called something like act like men or be a man or whatever. And I find this really strange. I know that some guys like that. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, if a guy likes that. One of my sons-in-law would absolutely love that. <laughs> all right. He loves going out shooting, hunting. He loves buying guns. Like He's totally like that. Military guy. And that is wonderful. We need men like that. But not all guys are like that. My husband is not like that in the least. He would hate conferences like that. But that does not mean my husband is not a real man. Okay? My husband would much rather go for a hike and participate in some scientific survey of owls <laughs> than he would fire a gun or hunt owls. Like, you know, my one son-in-law hunts mergansers, so it's a type of duck, and my, and my husband likes to look for ducks, and they always laugh about this. 
about their difference. You know, they're both really interested in identifying ducks and figuring out where they are, but for very different reasons. But it doesn't mean that one is more of a man than the other. There's no one model of being a Christian man. There is a lot of diversity in creation, and there's a lot of diversity in people too. We aren't meant to be the same. The Bible talks about how we are all different parts of one body, and we all have our own role to play. The hand isn't supposed to say to the foot, you know, why aren't you more of a hand? We're all supposed to do our own thing. And yet so often, don't you find that it feels like we are being told that we all have to be the same, that there's only one way to be a woman? If you add to all of that, something we were talking about last week in the podcast, this idea that all men lust, and then men are supposed to stay away from women because women become dangerous, well, then you get this situation in churches where we have all of these men's activities and all of these women's activities, and they never seem to match. They, there's not a lot of crossover. And so we don't spend time getting to know the other gender, which I think actually is, is really dangerous. Because then we tend to see everybody as the other. So women see men as the other and men see women as the other. And we don't see each other just as people. It's amazing how many women call, Paul called my fellow workers in Christ. Paul had a lot of great relationships with women. He called out Junia, who was his fellow apostle. He, he mentioned Priscilla, who was, who was busy teaching Apollos. I mean, these were all of his friends. And he said, greet one another with a holy kiss. Like they, they were part of the body of the church that he was a part of. And he didn't differentiate. He didn't d- divide people into men and women. And they were supposed to meet. And yet we've done that. We separate the genders and then it makes it harder to relate to people as people, which by the way, can make that whole lust problem worse because studies show the best way to defeat lust is to see the person as a complete human being rather than just seeing them as a woman. So instead of seeing her as a woman, you see her as Allison or Jennifer or Emily or Brenda. You see her as who she is. And when we prevent men from doing that by creating these different groupings, we actually make a lot of these lust problems worse. So maybe that's what we need to do in marriage, in our churches, everything is to see each other as people. And that's the glorious thing, especially in marriage. There are two of you, so you can compliment each other and make up the other's weaknesses. Keith is a feeler and I'm a thinker. Keith is traditional. He doesn't like to rock the boat. He likes to do things in general the way things are being done. I like to barge in and knock everything over. So he's the one who keeps our family solid, but I'm the one who stretches the boundaries and and, and lets us go on these big adventures. If we were both like me, we would be incredibly unstable. But if we were both like Keith, we wouldn't necessarily have new adventures. And so we need a little bit of both. Or even when we look about who does what in marriage. When we first got married, my husband did the finances. Then for several years, I did them. And now he's doing them. (laughs) When we were first married, I earned most of the income. Then for about 20 years, Keith did. And now he's cutting back at work so that I can do more of my ministry. We go back and forth depending on what God is leading us to. Our marriage doesn't necessarily look like any other marriage, but it doesn't need to. And yours doesn't either. 
God has called us all to something so individual. If you look around at nature, there's so much diversity. Why would we expect that he would want every single married couple to look the same way when there's so much diversity in nature? Why wouldn't we understand that God is saying to us, you know, you each have your own giftings. You each have your own personalities. Now go and do something amazing in the world because you each have things which I have prepared for you to do before the foundation of the world. And you don't need to look like anybody else. Perhaps instead of trying to reclaim biblical manhood or biblical womanhood, we should try to reclaim Christ. We are all called to look more and more like Christ. And as we do that, we become more and more who we were made to be. When we grow closer to God, we start doing the things that are specially prepared for us to do. And we become more comfortable in our own skin. And so that's what I would say. The only ideal we should be aiming for is Christ. When we aim for anything else, even if it's some version of biblical womanhood, it can all too easily become idolatry. So don't act like a man and don't act like a woman. Act like a Christ follower in the way that you were uniquely created to be. And then with your spouse, act like a couple who was following God in your own unique way. And that is totally okay. Are you part of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community? Sign up for my emails and you'll get weekly Friday updates with behind the scenes pictures and info, exclusive video content, stuff I'm wrestling with, and more. You'll also get access to our free resource library with over 25 marriage and parenting freebies, my free five-day sex pep talk, and more. Sign up on the homepage at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. It's our Millennial Marriage segment, and my daughter Rebecca is joining me. Hello. <laughs> and we, I, I want to continue our talk about gender stereotypes and just talk about what to do when you don't fit the stereotype, because, Becca, we really don't. No, we're <laughs> not exactly our you know, stereotypical wives. No, although your sister is. Oh, yeah, my sister totally is. She fits that to a T. She loves it, too. It just works with who she is very well. Right. So we're not saying there's anything wrong with being that kind of a woman. No, it's just, it's difficult when you grow up and you have a, everyone's always telling you that a a woman, a Christian woman is like this and you're not like that at all. Yeah. If anything, (laughs) we're a little bit jealous of like how easy some things kind of seem sometimes when you do fit those stereotypical molds. It's like, if you do fit the mold and you marry someone who fits the mold of man, Yeah, I mean congratulations, most advice works for you. (laughs) Okay, so how do you not fit the mold? Okay, well, pretty much the problem is with me and Connor that my emotional needs in our marriage are not what mostly are considered the women's romantic needs, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. So like, I don't really need the romancing or the chocolates or the presents or the surprise date nights. I actually find that a little annoying because I'd much rather just hang out at home. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm much more the person where I'd rather just kind of sit and go for a walk with the dog together or that kind of thing. Yeah. But then also Connor is actually the one who needs more of the, the praise and the affection and a bit more of the me taking time out of my day to make sure that he feels loved and appreciated, which in all the marriage books that Connor read specifically going into our marriage, it was supposed to be the other way around. 
right? right? There's all these things where it's reminding husbands, you have to remind your wife that like that you love her. You have to make sure that she knows that you still love her every day, even after you've said I do. Whereas I never actually really felt questioning if he did love me. Like he said, I do. I'm fine with that. Yep. I trust him. Now I just want him to actually act out stuff because I'm much more of a kind of tactile person. Like, okay, yeah, you love me, but are the dishes done kind of thing. <laughs> And typically, like, all these marriage devices, he's coming to me and he's showering me with right. these lovely words and these poetic things. And I'm just like, that's nice and all, but, like, could you maybe take out the garbage? Mm-hmm. <laughs> your your father your father used to write me poetry and I would laugh at him. Isn't that awful? That is awful. I didn't... I don't laugh at Connor. That is really awful. No, I was really awful. And I wish I had saved some of the poems now. And I want to tell him, you know, I want more poetry again. But I was yes. so awful. Oh, my gosh. But he was just being so romantic. And that just wasn't me. <laughs> Exactly. But that's exactly it, is I think that sometimes what happens as we get into these ideas of how things should be, or I know what happened in our marriage is both of us were just kind of going through that weird transition period when we were first married, right? Everyone goes through it, where it's kind of like growing pains because you're trying to figure out how to put your two lives together. Mm-hmm. And so Connor turned to a lot of these marriage books, and they tur- and they talked so much about how the husband can woo his wife and can love his wife, and all of it was super sappy and lovely and romantic, and... A lot of it is probably what would work really well if I did it for Connor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And, like, yeah. Connor's a really masculine guy. Hello, this is Connor here, editor of the podcast and husband of Rebecca. I just wanted to provide our dear listeners with an update. All available sources do confirm that I am indeed quite masculine. That is all. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. But, like, he's much more into the romance than I am a lot of the time. Yeah. You know? And I didn't really respond to it a whole lot, and so the the problems didn't go away. Right. Because I'm much more of a, you need to show that you love me, which is often what it's told to guys, right? Like, to women, to men. Yeah, that's what we always heard, is that men don't need to know I love you, they need to know why you love them. They need to hear thank you. Yeah, and they need to hear thank you, exactly. for us, it's kind of the opposite. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't need to necessarily hear, I love you, you're so beautiful, you're so pretty. I'm like, yeah, I know you think I'm hot. (laughs) I need you to say, wow, honey... Thank you for making my lunch. Yeah, exactly. You know? But what's really interesting is you're not a tomboy. No. Like, you're not a tomboy at all. Well, that's exactly it. That's the thing. It's like, when you look at us, like, I'm quite a feminine person, and Connor's quite a masculine man, but a lot of marriage advice didn't fit because we didn't fit those specific gender stereotypes they were talking about. Right. And that's just the thing, is whenever we think, oh, someone breaks the mold, you're thinking this kind of tomboyish kind of girl marrying this kind of Shakespearean, like, theatrical man, right? And that's not at all what it is sometimes. Sometimes you just don't fit either mold the stereotypical non-stereotypical mold mm-hmm. or just the stereotypical mold and that's okay and I think that the conversation became a lot easier for us when we stopped focusing on what's we what are we supposed to be doing based on our gender and more what does my spouse actually want exactly and that's a much healthier way to look at it and then and then there's the added issue which maybe you can speak to as well is what is it like growing up as a girl when you don't meet the gender stereotypes. Yeah. Because you had a lot of issues as a teenager, just because you were so opinionated. (laughs) Well, not even just because I was opinionated, because I found a lot of things that girls liked, quite frankly. And this is not... Like, I found them kind of flighty and dumb. Mm -hmm. I just did. And that's just my personality. And I recognized that they weren't... There's nothing inherently wrong Mm -hmm. with liking to watch High School Musical. 
Right. When you are 16. Right. But I just didn't. <laughs> you know, I was just like, this is not really what I'm into. I was not huge for like cheesy chick flicks. Even now, I'm not. No. And you will not you know? read romance novels or anything. I don't read like... romance novels. I do not enjoy them. Even good ones, I don't really enjoy them. Like, not mm-hmm. even just the cheesy ones. Like, I'm not into those kinds of things. I was never really into the whole just going to the mall to shop for four hours. I was never into any of those things. So my guy, my friends were normally all guys in high school, for one. Mm-hmm. And then I met these girls, and I tried to fit in, and I always felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb, because I just wasn't like them, but I looked like them. Yeah, because right? you, you were really into makeup and being pretty and all that it's not like I totally you were, was yeah you were very very stereotypical in that way but I was way more fashionable in high school than I am now yeah like <laughs> <laughs> except except when you were lifeguarding at the pool when you looked like a drowned rat but other than that oh no but I had cute shorts yes <laughs> <laughs> No, but the thing is, like, exactly, like, I, it wasn't that I was ever a tomboy, so I didn't fit in with the tomboy girl crowd, because I wasn't athletic. Mm-hmm. I just didn't really fit in anywhere, because everyone kind of seemed to have their clique, and I didn't. Yeah. Right? And mine was with the guys, but of course, I couldn't just go and have a weekend with the guys, because that would have been real sketchy, whereas right. you can do that with the girls, right? You can have sleepovers and stuff, so. Yeah, and then, of course, there is the issue that I, that we both have talked about that I encounter a lot, too, is, as a woman, the stereotype is that... You know, men are more intellectual and they want to talk about these deep issues, whereas women mm-hmm. really want to talk more about relationships and and mm-hmm. how we can all get along. And I was like, no, give me the deep issues. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was always really opinionated. And I was, I mean, I, I think at every annual meeting I ever went to for churches, I was always the one who asked the first question and, and the last question <laughs> and probably several in the middle. Like, I always had my issues. And... You know, it does mean that you don't always fit in in a church setting when you're like that. And that's actually exactly. that's actually how you wrote why I didn't rebel. A lot of a lot of those issues were because you told off your youth pastor when you were 15. <laughs> exactly. And there were other and the thing I didn't say in the book too is that there were other people who were raising the same issues that I were. But some of them were guys, and they didn't get ostracized the same way that I did. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, it also may have been because I'm just a bit more of a forceful personality. Yeah. But the reality is, like, sometimes when you are a girl, people, because when you say something, when you bring something up, when you make a fuss or when you make waves, people don't expect it as much because there is this idea of the kind, meek, kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. kind of church mouse kind of girl that everyone kind of expects you to be. Yeah. And when you're not, then you're almost punished for just being who you were created to be. And that's why, like, it was so healing for me to find a church where, like, women's opinions were kind of expected, not just allowed. Right. Yeah, where women mattered. And so, yeah, and, and I guess that's just what I want everyone to hear on today's podcast is that, it's okay if you're like my daughter Katie and you do, you do maybe look like a stereotypical woman. Although in many, I, I, I'm I'm talking about her like she is, and in many ways she she has her own quirks too. But but I mean, it's okay to love homemaking, and it's okay to yeah. love being pretty, and it's okay, you know, to love a, to love gabbing with your girlfriends on the phone for hours. Like right. it's totally great to love those things, right? But it's also okay to be very opinionated, and <laughs> you know, and to speak up, and to be forceful, and to not need all that romance like yeah to maybe be a little bit more of a matter-of-fact personality than you know more theatrical or romantic yeah because god made you the way you are and god made your husband the way he is and just figure out how you can run after god together you don't need to look like anybody else exactly and no matter if you fit the stereotypical molds or not the question should always start with 
what does my spouse need, not does what do people of my spouse's gender need. <laughs> Amen. Can you think your way to a great marriage? Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage shows how we often think wrongly about submission, sex, conflict, even anger, and how changing how you think can actually change how you feel and act, too. Don't settle for an okay marriage. Get a great marriage with Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage. Time for a reader question. A woman wrote in and asked, My husband and I have just started going through 31 days to great sex. I instigated it because I am dissatisfied with our sex life, but my husband was very willing to participate and is enjoying it so far. My problem is that as I put the effort forward for improving our sex life, I start to feel guilty. Guilt for spending time, money, and effort on something that is purely for my pleasure. Thoughts come into my head that there are so many more important things that I could be spending my time and effort on. I think it would help if my husband would be the instigator and would be asking for better sex because then I could rationalize it as putting forth the effort to please my husband. But his idea of good sex is like once a week, hey, do you want to? He makes sure that I always climax, but it's boring for me. So I'm the one who's pushing for more and I feel guilty. I could be using my energy to be a better mom or housewife or have a stronger prayer life or solve world hunger, but nope, I just want better sex and that seems so selfish. Great question. And I am glad that you're enjoying 31 Days to Great Sex. It is a wonderful tool. You know, it's just a challenge that you read with your husband every night and you do what it says. Everything builds on each other. It's not 31 days of great sex. It's 31 days to great sex. So each little bit builds and you learn how to connect physically and spiritually and emotionally in the bedroom. It's a lot of fun. So I'm glad you're trying that. But two things that I want to say about her letter. First of all, I think it's so funny that she's saying if it were my husband that wanted better sex, I'd be okay with that because it would be me pleasing him. But because it's me, I somehow feel guilty. Isn't that funny that we women don't really value our own sex drives? Like we really think that if we want better sex, we're being selfish. And I think it's because we've been raised to think of sex as being mostly for men, just like we talked about with gender stereotypes. And we forget that, you know, you were made to crave sex as well. But in terms of is it is it selfish to want better sex? No, I really don't think it is. Not when you understand what sex is really about. God made sex to help us connect, to help us feel like we are truly one, like we're being really, really intimate. And that is a good thing. And if God made this great gift for you, there's no problem with wanting to fully enjoy that. And she's saying, yes, but it could be out solving world hunger. Okay, but you know what? Doing 31 days to great sex takes like, like maximum half an hour a night. And that's on a really super good night. Like it's not like this is taking a ton of your time. It's probably taking your Netflix time more than anything else. (laughs) So that is not being selfish. And the effort that we make to feel closer to our spouses and to feel more intimate is just going to fuel everything else. I think that this is what we women often forget is that the more sexually satisfied you are, the closer you feel to your husband, the easier it's going to be to be a mom, the easier it's going to be to want to do the housework, the easier it's going to be to go out there and work because you feel energized and um, your sex life and making love to your husband becomes this fuel and foundation for everything else you do 
because when that is working really well, we often feel a lot more energy um, for the rest of our lives. So you definitely do not need to feel guilty. It is good to work on this because this is supposed to be a vital part of your marriage. You are supposed to feel like you're one. You're supposed to feel close. You're supposed to have fun. It's supposed to be passionate. In fact, being passionate gives you a glimpse into God's character. So that's not a bad thing. And sure, there are other things that we could be doing, but the more that we work on our marriages, the more that we are energized to do those other things. So don't feel guilty at all. Every podcast, I like to highlight a comment that's coming either on the blog or social media or an email I received. And today I've got um, an email, just an amazing one from a woman um, who is from Africa. I'm not going to say what country because I don't want to identify her, but I think between 10 to 15% of my readers are from Africa. And I, I just want to say to you all who are listening, I so appreciate you. My husband and I love the country of Kenya. We've been there several times. I would love to go back and I'm just so happy that I can breathe into your marriages as well. Uh, so here is what she writes. Two years back, I had read Love and Respect, and I promised myself that I would do all that was in the book when I got married to my now husband. When I got in, I thought I was being a perfect wife. I was following it to the letter, but my husband only became hateful, resentful, selfish, deceptive. I tried all that sweet, baby, this is how I feel, then don't bring it up again nonsense, and it never helped. I cried myself to sleep most nights. Yep, there I was, married less than five months, and I was already an expert at crying quietly in bed so as not to wake him. He had to work the next day, you know, so why bother him now? He didn't care about my sex drive, treated me badly in front of his friends, got defensive when I mentioned it, and when I asked if I had done something wrong to warrant his harsh behavior, you know, because disrespect is what causes unloving behavior, he'd start shouting at me saying that nothing was wrong. And when I'd insist, he'd, he would ask if I wanted him to make something up out of the blue. He became more and more abusive every day until finally I couldn't take it anymore. And I left six months in. I was done. I prayed. I cried. I asked him to change, then waited patiently on the Lord like the respectful wife that I was. But I was depressed and I couldn't live like that. Surely God would understand. But my relationship with him was messed up, too, because I was too busy trying to please my husband. And it didn't feel like God's peace was on my side anymore. He loved my husband more than me. And I should stay and pray. The classic Christian Pat answer well, I just couldn't take it anymore. I went to a friend's house and during my stay is when I came across your post on signs of emotional abuse and that if it's happening, I should do something about it, not be an enabler. Then I saw your series against the love and respect book and story after story was talking also about me. He begged me to come back and had a list of changes he promised to make and he has kept them. But I know it's because I came back with a different mindset towards myself marriage, submission, and respect, all thanks to your God-ordained blog. Otherwise, we'd have just sunk back to the cycle we were in before. So thank you for teaching me that marriage is for growing in godliness, that God doesn't condone abuse towards women, and that I should do what God requires of me. And it brings so much joy over what will make my husband happy as he gives in to his selfish, carnal nature. I love that. Like, seriously, that was that email was just such an encouragement to me because here's a woman who gets it. She had been trying to follow all the gendered stereotype advice that we get, and she found it didn't work. And what she needed to do instead was focus on what God requires, which is that you love mercy, that you act justly, and that you walk humbly with your God, that you point people to Jesus, and that every day you act like 
Jesus. That means that you can't just become a pushover and you can't enable sin because Jesus does not enable sin. And a lot of the advice that we get, the very gendered advice, is about enabling sin. Um, just one thing extra. After all of your comments and emails about that love and respect series, I did put together a report of all those comments and and what people thought of the book, as well as a letter that you can send to any churches or organizations if you're concerned about this. So you can download that in the podcast extras for this podcast right on the blog. It's lovehonoredvacuum.com under podcast extras. I've got that right there. Or um, if you go to any of my love and respect posts, that will be at the bottom of those posts as well. To pull everything together today, we use gender stereotypes for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes it's laziness. I know I'm guilty of this sometimes in my posts. Sometimes it's naivety. You know, we think because we're this way that everybody else must be. We only know our own experience and we generalize way too much. But sometimes it's really about control. Look, if people are trying to get you to act or to look a certain way, either as a woman or as a couple, and they're ostracizing you or telling you that you're bad if you don't do that, then that's just not right. Be the person that God has made you to be. The world needs you with your personality and your giftings and you matter. So thanks for joining us for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, where we reject people trying to make marriage into a to-do list or trying to put us into a box, and we get beyond Christian pat answers to see marriage as a passionate adventure. Do check out the blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. This week, we've had some great practical posts on arousal for women, which you might find very helpful. I mean, we all need some sex ed sometimes. (laughs) And do subscribe to this podcast and tell other people about it. 